Well, I now invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me to the letter written by the Apostle Peter, and it will be his first letter that he writes, so please open your Bibles to 1 Peter. This is a book that I'm sure we're all familiar with. It's an incredible book of Holy Scripture that uh, we will now launch a, a study in, and I trust that and pray that the Spirit of God will use it to sanctify His church, to give us grace to live godly lives in the midst of troubling days. As uh, usually the first message I give when we launch into a new book study is to give uh, an introductory message, just kind of getting us a little more familiar with some of the aspects and circumstances of the letter so we can put it in the context so as we work or start to work our way through it, we can have a little better understanding of the book as a whole. I want to uh, first begin by asking the question, who wrote the letter? And obviously it was Peter. I have no questions or doubts about that. Although some object that he literally wrote it, that he might have used a secretary, that he would have spoken to and the secretary would would have wrote it down. The reason why they they say that is because the quality of the Greek is really quite good. And Peter's a fisherman. And so their logic is maybe he used someone else to actually write it out under the guidance of the Spirit, the inspiration of the Spirit. And they, they get that really from, if you go all the way back to 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, he speaks in verse 12, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. And so they interpret that phrase through Silvanus, which is a longer form of the name Silas thinking that maybe it was Silas that actually penned it. Uh, Peter's there giving him the words and he's writing it, and but it, some of the syntax, maybe some of the language or whatever is coming through Silas under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's one of the objections. Um, and it's, it's possible that Peter could have used a secretary or an amanuensis as he's called, to actually pen the letter under his dictation. And he could have slightly modified the Greek, again, under the inspiration of of the Spirit, to its uh, form that we have in the Scripture. Um, But uh, probably this expression in 1 Peter 5, verse 12, through Silvanus. Silvanus is the one who is carrying the letter to the reader's not the one who's writing the letter or uh, the secretary of the letter. That's probably the better view. There's certainly good reason to believe that Peter did write the letter, uh, that he was capable of writing very good Greek, even though he was a Jew and his native language would have been Aramaic. Uh, Because Greek was the language of commerce in the first century. And Greek and Greek culture had penetrated into Galilee. Uh, As a man of business, as a fisherman, Peter would have certainly uh, engaged in trade with all kinds of people, selling his his fish, more than likely. And if you look at the, the map of... Which one is working? If you look at Decapolis that area in the first century, Decapolis, because it originally was ten Greek cities with Greek culture, Greek language, that had spread all the way over to the west side of the Jordan River. So there's a heavy, heavy Greek emphasis, Greek-speaking, Greek culture that had influenced all of Palestine, even in the first century. Um, This uh, Decapolis... Jesus traveled up in there at times. So he he would minister sometimes within this region. And it's uh, very understandable that Peter, as a fisherman, a businessman, would have understood the language of Greek. 
Peter is from Bethsaida, which is at the northern point, not the black dot on the top of the Sea of Galilee. It's a little farther north on the very tip of the Sea of Galilee. So he grew up in very close proximity to the Decapolis and all the Greek influences and Greek culture. So that more than likely he certainly understood Greek. One of the cities of the Decapolis is on the west side of the Jordan River. The name of that city is Sephorus. And it was a very Hellenistic city. They spoke both Aramaic and Greek. So that there was very much a bilingual culture in the first century. So that would uh, certainly uh, help us to understand that, that Peter could have learned Greek. He was a businessman. He had interactions with people. There would be good reasons for him, even as a Jew, to know it because the culture was somewhat bilingual. Also, it, there's evidence that ordinary people in Israel, especially in Galilee, where Peter grew up, knew Greek. And this can be seen by the fact that in both Jerusalem and in cities in Galilee, there are many ossuaries. You know what an ossuary is? It's one of those stone boxes that when you died, they would bury you. And after there's nothing left but bones, they would collect the bones and stick them in a little stone box with a lid on it. And then they would go store that someplace so your remains are stored. They find ossuaries in Galilee with Greek on it instead of Aramaic, just reflecting again that they that Greek was a language that they knew and used. Um, we also know that Josephus seems to indicate that Jews could write Greek well. Other Jews besides himself could write Greek well uh, through their education. And in Nazareth, which is in Galilee there was an imperial inscription warning against the robbing of tombs. And it was written in Greek in the first century in Galilee for all the people to be warned, but they wrote it in Greek, implying that people could read Greek. They knew Greek, even the Jews. Also, in a number of Jewish synagogues, you can find Greek inscriptions according to Thomas Schreiner, who wrote one of the commentaries I'm reading in my preparation. So Greek was common and uh, known by even Jews within the land. So the fact that First Peter is written in very good Greek uh, is not surprising that Peter was could have could have done that. Of course, the another part of that accusation is that in Acts four, the leading uh, Jewish religious leaders accused the disciples, and particularly Peter, of not being educated or trained. In Acts 4.13, remember, they accused him, he's not educated, he's untrained. Of course, what they mean by that is that he hasn't been to the rabbinic school of seminary education. That's what they mean. But to say that he was a fisherman so he was dumb or uneducated is certainly not an appropriate conclusion. So there's, there's really no way that you can rule out that Peter knew Greek well, so it's uh, certainly my conviction that he, he wrote the book. Now who is Peter? Well, Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 1 of 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we know he's one of the twelve apostles. He ends up writing two letters. His given name at birth was Simon, but the Lord gave him the name Peter on their very first meeting in John chapter 1, where he's given the name Cephas or Peter. Aramaic for Cephas and Greek Peter. Peter means rock, which is no doubt a foreshadowing of the grace of God which would transform this man over time. Peter is one of the most interesting characters that we have in the New Testament. Obviously, he was chosen by Christ to be one of the twelve. But he was also chosen by Christ to be one of the inner three. Peter, James, and John. James and John were the brothers. So had Peter, James, and John. And there were times in our Lord's ministry when 
he would call those three men out and have them go and see things and hear things that the other uh, did not get to hear. The other nine did not get to hear. So Peter was among the inner three as well as among the, the twelve. For example, the inner three saw the transfiguration of Jesus on the mount. The other nine didn't get to see that. The inner three saw the resurrection of Jairus' daughter where Christ raised that daughter from the dead. The inner three were the ones in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus called them alongside and they had a closer observation of the intensity and agony of what Jesus was going through, at least the times that they were awake because they were falling asleep all the time, you remember. But they were closer to Christ in that regard. Peter, out of the three, has some special uh, unique privileges over the other eleven. He was the first to confess Christ as the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Remember, Jesus said, you know, you didn't come up with that on your own. It's my Father gave that to you. But He was the first to make that public proclamation. He was the first to be given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but the other disciples were given that as well. He was the first to see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord. And He was blessed by God as a preacher on the day of Pentecost when He preached and 3,000 sinners came to faith in Jesus Christ and were saved. He also had the gift of miracles like the other disciples had, but only Peter, does Scripture say, was raised someone from the dead. Only Peter. Paul, of course, later on will do the same. So in some ways, Peter is, is uh, given a higher mark uh, in terms of certain privileges. We know just reading the Gospels, he was a man of action, a man of enthusiasm, a man of boldness. But for all of his spiritual blessings and natural gifts, there's no other man in the New Testament whose failures and sins and faults are painted in living color more than Peter. He was a man of great successes, a man of great blessings, but he was a man of great failures. On the one hand, he could say, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he could make a rash vow, I will never disown you, Lord. And yet he could also be rebuked by the Lord for saying, for Jesus saying that He would go to the cross and, and Peter rebukes the Lord for, for going to the cross, the very reason why He came to earth. And then later, Peter would deny the Lord three times. So a man of great blessing and privilege, but a man who certainly had great failures as well. I think it's out of that combined experience that Peter is writing these letters. A man who walked with Christ. A man who knew Christ. But a man who experienced a lot of failure in his life. Even so that the Lord had to say to him at one point, Satan, get behind me. Because he had sensed that when some of what Peter was saying and, and rebuking the Lord for saying He was going to go to the cross and Peter rebuked Him, that Jesus saw really that it was Satan that was giving Him those thoughts. Satan, get behind Me. And it's out of all of this struggle with His own sanctification and all of that that I think this letter becomes so rich and it becomes so experiential for us in the sense that the truths that he's writing about are truths that he lived, that he learned, sometimes the hard way. But he writes them for our benefit, for our blessing, for our edification. Peter, by the grace of God, learned how to rebound from failures. 
He learned how, by God's grace, to persevere through trials. He learned what's really important in life. And when we read this letter, we will also be exhorted and challenged and encouraged. So as Peter describes himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ, that's a high mark. Paul does the same thing. Other apostles would do the same thing. That's an authoritative messenger and interpreter of the gospel. One who is uniquely chosen and handpicked by Jesus Christ to be trained by Him for a period roughly around three years to carry on the ministry of the gospel once Jesus is crucified, raised from the dead, and, and ascends back to His Father in heaven. So he, he describes Himself as an apostle of Christ. And this letter is inspired by the Spirit of God. So Peter is writing God's words to God's churches. And we are one of them. So this letter is going to be written to us as well. Well, when and where was First Peter written? Well, most of the commentators, and I've read a number of them, uh, they, they vary a little bit, but most of them will say around 62 to 63 A.D., probably about the time that Paul is released from prison in Rome. It's probably, you know, the, the great fire of Rome occurred in 64 A.D. Probably what happened there was Nero started this, the fire in the city because he wanted to rebuild it for his own glory and his own name. So he started this fire. A huge portion of the city of Rome burned down to the ground, 64 A.D., and then Nero blamed the Christians for it. And within the city of Rome, there's a great persecution that started against the church. So possibly, in light of the letter, there's a lot of suffering mentioned in First Peter. But most commentators would say this letter was written probably right before that. Because if that fire had already occurred and that even greater persecution was now going on in Rome, then there would probably be some reflection of that. He's also writing the, um, the letter. You'll need to... Uh, my, there you go. Thank you. He's also writing the letter to regions that are basically in modern-day Turkey. If you'll look at verse 1 again, 1 Peter chapter 1, Verse 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So he's writing to this region. Now, where is, where is Peter writing from? Well, he tells us in chapter 5, verse 13, uh, back in that section, he makes a comment. He says, She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. So apparently, he is in Babylon. Now, is that literal Babylon? Or is Babylon kind of a code description for another city? There's no indication in church history or anywhere else that Peter actually went all the way to Bab Babylon in the Middle East. So most commentators, um, almost without exception that I have read, all say that this is a code language for the city of Rome. And you know you can, you can differ on that if you choose. Uh, also in the book of Revelation, the city of Rome is described as Babylon. So it certainly is, seems to be consistent. Babylon was the world power back in the day, hostile to God, the world capital of idolatry. And that's what Rome had become. And so it was a common designation among Jews, the commentaries say, that they refer to Rome as Babylon. So probably that's where he's at. He's in Rome. Church history does acknowledge that he moved to Rome 
And he lived there for a period of time. And then he also was martyred in Rome, probably around 67 or so A.D. But he's writing this letter to these regions of Asia Minor, as we would refer to that. And the persecution that they were enduring was mainly local. It was uh, in response to the Christian witness to the pagans, the, the Greeks, the Gentiles in the area. And, and the thing that bothered them the most, of course, was the exclusiveness of the Christian gospel. The gospel that they were preaching is that we are all sinners. We have all sinned against God. No one can do anything to earn their salvation. You can't be good enough because God's standard is perfect righteousness. We all fall short of the glory of God. So there's only one way to heaven. There's only one way to salvation. And that is through faith alone in Christ alone. No one else can save you. Again, the church can't save you. Baptism can't save you. Trying to be a good person won't save you because we're all sinners. We fall short. Only Jesus Christ can save you. Only Jesus Christ is Lord being God. Not Caesar. So the Roman government required everyone to bow the knee to Caesar and call Him Lord. Well, that was not accepted well. And also within Roman culture, Greek, you know, the Roman Empire at this time, there is a, a concept that, uh, of tolerance or reciprocal acceptance of all the different religions that are being represented. It's kind of like the postmodernism view of today that really no one religion is better than any other. And you're awfully arrogant if you think that your religion is better than somebody else's religion. But that's exactly what they were preaching. All other religions are false religions. You're only saved by God's grace through Christ alone, through faith alone. There's no other way to heaven. No other religion can do that for you. They're all false religions. And as they preached the gospel, that tone, that message came out and it caused backlash. It caused persecution. It caused suffering. And Peter addresses a lot of that in his letter. And that's why I think it will be a fitting study for us because of just what's going on within our own culture, not knowing which direction it's all going to take in terms of how the world is going to react to the church and treat the church and, and, uh, and deal with the church and our convictions about Jesus Christ. So it makes this letter very applicable for our own day and age. So he's writing it to these regions. Now, notice the top Pontus, then Galatia. This is the order that Peter puts it. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. It's kind of a circular route. So whether that was intended that way, uh, possibly. But he's in Rome writing a letter to all these Believers and Christians that are scattered throughout this whole region. Again, probably in the early 60s. So the gospel has been preached. Churches have been established. Paul established a lot of them. Peter may himself have gone up and, and established some of these churches. So the next question is, okay, so now we know the general region that he's writing to. Who, what kind of Christian is he writing to? Is he writing to Jewish believers or Gentile believers? Or a mix? And I think it has to be a mix. The idea that there are, by this time, churches that are just Jewish is a little difficult to comprehend. It's possible, but uh, unlikely in my understanding. And the majority of modern scholarship is that Peter wrote primarily to, to Gentile believers with Jewish believers in the mix. But primarily Gentile believers. Now, the reason against that is that if you look at verse 1, it says, to those who reside as aliens scattered, and that word scattered is literally the diaspora, which was used of Jews being scattered out into this area, 
after the Babylonian and Assyrian invasions in the Old Testament. So they were called the diaspora, the scattered ones. But again, the the majority of the commentaries and the Greek lexicons I've looked at all favor the idea that these are still Gentiles that are being described as aliens scattered about. That's, that's definitely the majority view. If you look at the letter, you can see hints of that. For example, there in uh, chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. In other words, your previous lifestyle was one of ignorance. Well, that was a common way that the Jews described the, the former lifestyle of Gentiles. They lived in ignorance. They didn't have the law of God. They lived in ignorance. And that's the way Peter is describing his readers. They lived in ignorance. So it would seem to, to fit. If you look at verse 18, chapter 1, verse 18. Peter writes, Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. They say Peter wouldn't have written to Jews describing their former life that way. Futile way of life inherited from your forefathers. That describes the Gentiles. Not Jews. So the ones who take the Gentile uh, recipients of the letter will, will point that out as well. I mean, the Jews were God's elect people in the Old Testament. They were normally held their forefathers in high regard. And yet Peter says, eh, you, your life was futile and that you inherited from your forefathers. That's just not normally the way that a Jew, Peter, would describe other Jews in terms of their, their background. Also, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, and you look at verse 10, he says, For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Those are quotations from the prophet Hosea. And Paul in Romans chapter 9 quotes the very same passage and refers it to a Gentile who come to, to faith in Jesus Christ. So Peter probably is quoting it. That's the way they probably understood that passage. It's a reference to, uh, to Gentiles rather than to Jews. Who are not my people, now you become my people. You had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. So that would also support that the audience is primarily uh, full of Gentiles. And then you look finally at uh, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 3. For the time already passed is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousing, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. And that whole laundry list of sins is how the Jews normally describe the Gentiles. So, it would be unusual for Peter to say, well, they're surprised. Look at how you changed. But if they were already Jews who had fallen into sinful ways and then come out of it, that wouldn't really be a surprise to the, to the other Gentiles. Well, they're just going back to what they, their, their upbringing was, Judaism. And it just seems to fit more that these are Gentiles and they came out of this abominable idolatry, the drunkenness, the carousing, and they've come out of that and the other Gentiles are really surprised and amazed. Uh, verse 4, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them to the same excesses of dissipation and they malign you. So it just seems to fit. <clears throat> so the approach that I'm taking is that the letter is written primarily to Gentiles with, with Jews mixed but this is really what Jesus said in John 10, that I have other sheep which are not of this fold, not the Jewish fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. I mean, even if Peter is writing primarily to Jewish believers, all the truths in here, all the descriptions are going to be true of Gentiles as well. 
Because that dividing wall has been broken down in Christ, right? And also, Paul says in Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. So within Christ, we're all one. So what, you know, even if he's writing to Jews, the same designations and truths are going to apply to Gentile believers as well. Okay, let's go back to chapter 1, verse 1 again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout all this region up here. So again, the word scattered is diaspora. Again, commonly used of Jews, but probably here, according to the Greek lexicons, the majority of commentaries refers to primarily Gentiles. The reason why it's true because the New Testament church becomes the New Covenant Israel. And that's why some of this language can be fitting for them as well. Uh, but if you, if you remember, well, well, look again how Peter describes them as aliens. And that's a word I want to camp on just for a moment. These believers scattered throughout modern day Turkey are aliens. And the word means strangers, sojourners, pilgrims. And this sums up Peter saying, this is what you believers are in this world. You're aliens. You live in all these different areas. Maybe you grew up there your whole life. Your roots are planted there. But your spiritual reality of who you are in Christ, you're an alien. You're an exile. You're a pilgrim. I love in uh, John Bunyan's classic work, Pilgrim's Progress, that Mr. Valiant for Truth introduced himself to Mr. Greatheart. I just love those names. I mean, Valiant for Truth. And someone with a, with a great heart. So Mr. Valiant for Truth introduces himself to Mr. Greatheart and his companions with these words. <clears throat> I'm a pilgrim. And I'm going to the celestial city. And really that summarizes, I think, how we should understand how Peter is addressing all of these uh, believers. Excuse me. We certainly are aliens and strangers and pilgrims in this world. Kind of like Israel in the wilderness, which really becomes a picture of the church in the world today. Israel in the wilderness, wandering around, really had no um, permanent residence. They're on their way to the promised land, but in the wilderness, they're just kind of, they're aliens, they're strangers, they're pilgrims, they're, they're sojourners. And really, that describes who we are in this world. Of course, now we're not supposed to, to flee the world or go hide from the world. Rather, we're to engage the culture even though we are aliens, we're to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. We're to be ambassadors for Christ with the gospel. So even though we're aliens and pilgrims and strangers, still we have a ministry to the world in which we live. So don't misunderstand what I'm saying or what Peter is saying. It's also not saying that we can't enjoy our blessings now. Just don't make idols of them. But we are both exiles in this world as well as agents for change through the gospel as we preach it. As exiles, we resist being conformed to the world. As Christians, we are also reformers with the gospel. So for us, it's onward and upward to heaven. The description of, of aliens, <clears throat> excuse me. is something that you can find a lot of biblical expressions that undergird this concept that we are strangers and aliens and sojourners and pilgrims. 
For example, Paul says our citizenship is where? In heaven. It's not on this earth. Yeah, we have a dual citizenship. We're citizens of the country we live in, but we're also citizens in heaven, and that's our highest citizenship. In Galatians uh, chapter 4, Paul says that the Jerusalem above is our mother. So that's where our that's where our grace comes from. That's where our birth came from. It came from above, remember, in John 3? You must be born from above. So the, the Jerusalem above is our mother. That's where God lives. That's where grace comes down to us. So even though we live here on this earth, we're aliens and strangers and pilgrims. In Hebrews 12, it says, We have not come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. In Hebrews 13, the author says, We do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come, i.e. the the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Jesus said in John 16 that His disciples were in the world, but not of the world. We're aliens, we're pilgrims, we're strangers. We're just kind of passing through. So we're not to love the world or the things in the world. Because the world is hostile to us. It's hostile to the gospel. And we're to live lives dedicated to Jesus Christ. The idea of alien here in verse 1 really has two connotations to it. Number one, a, a transitory existence. In other words, we're only here for a little while. This is not our eternal home on this earth. Uh, in Psalm 39, the, the psalmist says, Our days are as hand breaths. We're like a mere breath. So as you breathe in and breathe out, that's about as long as life lasts in a certain perspective on earth. We're just we're momentary little blips in time. The things that are seen are temporal. 2 Corinthians 4. They're not eternal. They're temporal. They only last for a little while. And the world is passing away, John says in 1 John 2.17. The world is passing away. This is not our home. So on the one hand, to be described as aliens suggests, you know, be mindful, you believers, that this is not your, this is not your permanent dwelling place. And on the second aspect of it, is that we're to live as aliens, understanding that this is not... I'm only here for a little while, but we're also only here for a little while in a place that is not our our real home. We have a real no country of our own here on earth. We don't belong permanently to this world in which we live. We belong to the world to come. We should not clutch too tightly the things of this world because they're, they're temporary at best. They're here today and gone tomorrow. And this should make, our, make us hold our life and the blessings that we have in this life with an open hand. I remember in uh, Corey Ten Boom's uh, book when she talked about being in a Nazi concentration camp and all the sufferings that they endured there for helping the Jews. And she said that sometimes they get these little blessings and man, they would just really cling tight to those little blessings, but then they would lose them. Of course, they didn't have anything. They're in a concentration camp. But she said, God over and over and over had to teach me, don't clutch and grip tightly the things of this world because it hurts when God breaks and pries off your fingers to make us realize that this is not our permanent home. We can thank God for the blessings that we have. Enjoy the blessings that we have. But never make them an idol. Never make them the ultimate object of your pursuits because we are aliens in this world. We have a higher calling than to just be heavy laden with the worldly things. Christians are to build their lives on better things. Things of eternity. Things of Christ. Things that are above, not here below on the earth. 
We're to always be mindful that we are aliens and pilgrims and strangers living in enemy territory where there's worldly landmines all around us, demonic snipers shooting at us, lustful snares and temptations all around us. And we must continually remember, I am an alien here. I'm a pilgrim here. This is not my home. Ultimately, my home is heaven. So when he, when he launches into this, this is a theme he's going to pick up several more times if you drop down. Uh, where is it? If you look at, for example, chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We're in a battle here. We're aliens and strangers. And we're to abstain from the sins of the flesh because we're in a battle. We're in a war. So we're pilgrims moving through enemy territory and we must guard our hearts well. The purpose of the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter Peter is writing this letter to all these different churches kind of as a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. That's how Edmund Clowney described it. I like that. 1 Peter is a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims. If you ever had the privilege and blessing to travel in other places or go to another city, and you want to know, well, what, what's interesting to do there? You know, you order and you get a traveler's guide. And it points out all the high spots. Well, in a spiritual dimension, 1 Peter is a traveler's guide for Christian pilgrims that are facing a various kinds of suffering and persecution for their faith. That's a major theme in 1 Peter, suffering. The concept uh, the, is mentioned 15 times in the book and Peter uses eight different Greek words to describe it. So suffering is one of the major themes that he's addressing in 1 Peter. Now again, the, the, the persecution side of that, there's more suffering than just persecution. But the persecution up in this area was not an empire-wide go out and kill Christians. But it's more of localized and sporadic. But there was real opposition to the Christian faith. So you could summarize the purpose of the book this way. That Peter writes First Peter to encourage Christian pilgrims to live godly lives in the midst of suffering by fixing their hope on Christ and the glory to come. That kind of summarizes the essence, I think, of what He's going to communicate within the book. In your out, in your outline, I've given you, uh, or in your handout, I've given you an outline, modified outline that I borrowed from Thomas Schreiner again. Kind of summarizes some of the main aspects of the book of First uh, Peter that we'll begin to uh, work our way through. Uh, pilgrims need to understand who they are. They need to know what their duties are as they live as as aliens in a foreign land, basically. In conclusion, if you remember John Bunyan's classic work again, uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which is a wonderful read. If you've never read it, you really should. But Christian is on a long journey from the city of destruction to the celestial city in the book, you remember. And on his journey, of course, he first has to find a way to unload that big burden of sin that he's carrying on his back. And he finally gets that burden taken off when he comes to the cross of Christ. It's a wonderful Gospel message. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The Scriptures are very clear. You're a sinner. We are all sinners. We're all in that same boat. We have a great big burden of sin that we carry around with us. And there's nothing that we can do to untie it or to break it off or to cast it from us. We have not that ability. 
It's only when you come with the Spirit of God convicting you of your sin and giving you grace and you see your sin and you want to be forgiven that you come to the cross of Christ and you confess your sins to Him trusting in nothing else, no one else to save you but Jesus Christ alone because He died on the cross. And God put our sins, the sins of His people on Him. And He suffered the wrath of Almighty God. The curse of the law of God. The anger of God. The punishment, the penalty for all of our sins. He endured on the cross in the place of His people. As our substitute. He absorbed that. He drank the full cup of the wrath of God. And the invitation goes out to any and every sinner. Repent and come to Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Believe in Him and He's promised that He will forgive you and wash you. And though your sins are as scarlet, He'll make them white as snow. Nothing else will save you. Don't look to a person to save you. Don't look again to a church. Don't look to your own good works, your own righteousness. That won't save you at all. Only Jesus Christ. You must come. You must believe. You must call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. That's the only way. There's no other way. And John Bunyan in that classic work has described the conversion of Peter and then all of the struggles and the hardships and the pain that he has as a believer making his way to the celestial city as a pilgrim in a foreign land. And Christian has to go through all of these enemies and dangers, the the slew of despond, all the bad counsel from people like Mr. Worldly Wise Man, If anybody comes up and introduces themselves to you as Mr. Worldly Wise Man, turn around and walk away. Mr. Worldly Wise Man. John Bunyan had a gift of coming up with all of these descriptive names. Then he had to go through the village of morality that's so full of hypocrisy and self-righteousness and law and works to try to earn your salvation. Then he had to climb the hill of difficulty and go through the valley of humiliation and then the valley of the shadow of death with all of the terrors and all the trials associated with it. Then he had to go through vanity fear and endure all the persecution that occurred there. I think that's where hopeful, I think, was put to death. And then through Bypath Meadow and Doubting Castle and giant despair that threw him in prison and walk, and he'd come in with his whip and just beat him. Mercilessly just beat him. Persecute him in the prison. Until suddenly Christian realized, I've got a key that will unlock the prison door. And the key was the key of promise. The key of Scripture. That he was able to escape. And then he had to go through all of the final trial of crossing the river of death, and then he finally ends up in the celestial city. It's a wonderful book. He had to learn the hard way the importance of staying on path, staying on the narrow way. But here in First Peter is really kind of the, the inspired version of Pilgrim's Progress. Because we were aliens and exiles and strangers and pilgrims. Not a fanciful dream written by a Christian, but a letter written by one of the apostles of Christ, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to write down the very truths that Bunyan borrows in his classic work so that Peter is really given to us really the inspired version of Pilgrim's progress through this alien land as the Spirit of God leads him to write down words and truths to be a blessing to his people. In this letter, Peter 
will describe to us who we are and what we have in Christ. Every time I've had the privilege of being someplace other than our country and experience the differences, I think I am so glad to be an American. So blessed to be an American. What Peter wants us to realize as pilgrims and aliens as we're living in this world is to always be my, I'm so glad my home is in heaven. I belong to heaven. I'm so glad Christ is mine. And so he'll begin, launch in, so that we understand who we are and what we have in Christ. And then he'll move into the other areas of then how should we live in light of who we are and what we have in Christ? How should we live in this alien world, this enemy territory? And how are we to live for the glory of God as persecuted pilgrims in a world having a firm hope on the glory that Christ has for us? And that will be the direction of First Peter. So I hope and pray that as we uh, launch into this, that the Spirit of God would teach us to understand better who we are in this world. And to apply those truths to help us to live faithful, godly lives. No matter how much opposition we may have in the future or persecution, Peter will equip us to live that way well for the glory of God. So may the Lord uh, bless us as we launch into this study. Well, let's close in a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do want to thank You for all of Holy Scripture. We thank You, Lord, for all 66 books that are included within our Bible. And Lord, we thank You for First Peter, for the things that we will learn, for the truths that will be communicated for the help that we will receive by Your grace and mercy to help us live our lives for the glory of God, living in light of the hope of glory in the midst of a world that, will, that hates Christ, that is hostile to the Gospel. And for all of that, Lord, we ask Your blessings as we begin to study this wonderful book. Build this church upon the Gospel and the truths of Christ. And help us to live for Your glory and for Your honor, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen.